According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Once again, join me in the scriptures, if you would, in, uh, tell you what, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 11 today. Luke chapter 11. We're going to be back in Matthew 23 here in just a moment, but I'm going to use Luke 11 to introduce it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're headed for Luke, the third gospel, and chapter 11. It's kind of a long chapter, 54 verses worth. So uh, go ahead and aim for the end of that. Verse 37 and following. Verses 37 and following. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for... Um, the faithfulness we barely even comprehend and understand, Father, because of our finite wisdom, because of our uh, human limitations. And yet, Father, uh, to the degree that you allow us to understand your faithfulness, we are so overwhelmed, Father, and humbled and thankful uh, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again this morning to guide us into the truth yeah, your word has promised that it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And every time you teach us in your word, Father, you demonstrate that faithfulness over and over again. So, Father, commit, we commit to our time now. Set aside distractions. Guide us in the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the midst of episode 10, Jesus' last sermon. And uh, otherwise, you could think of this as the... Um, uh, the Matthew 23 discourse, as it were. Uh, this is his last public message. Still to come are the Upper Room Discourse, the Mount Olivet Discourse, but those are private messages to his disciples, not in a public setting, not with hostile Pharisees uh, in, uh, in attendance. Um, so we'll be dealing with those coming up. Uh, I've, I've given this kind of the label of the Great Hypocrisy Discourse the great hypocrisy discourse where he pronounces seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And uh, we're, we're going to be getting into those woes here today and the seven different pronouncements, the indictments that he has against them. Under point three, we uh, illustrated how the introduction actually establishes the theme for the entire chapter. I don't even have a projector on, do I? Okay. Appreciate that. Bob wins the prize today. All right, well, that'll take a minute to warm up. The introduction, which is verses 1 through 12, actually establishes the theme for the entire chapter. If you understand the doctrine that's being developed in verses 1 through 12, well, then um, you're good to go and you'll have no problem with uh, what's being, uh, the impact of what's being preached in each of these woes as it comes out. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And um, the hypocrisy of saying one thing and living another is not going to be tolerated. You understand? All right. 
right, so we have under point one, we detail Jesus' final public message. Under point two, we discuss the nature of this discourse. Under point three, the introduction establishes the theme for the entire chapter. And there are subpoints here, A, B, C, D, and uh, we have covered those already. The um, just go ahead and move on to point four then. And if you weren't a part of this, then you can, uh, you know, in previous weeks leading up, then obviously the website is available and you can get caught up uh, on your own time as you have time. Let's move on to point four, though. We're studying a, an episode that has um, a lot of things that are redundant, a lot of things that are repeated from earlier messages. And I want to make sure we understand that context. And so I like to do that in a lot of times I do that in earlier points, point one often, but here it comes in point four. Luke's gospel recorded a similar message on an earlier occasion. And that's why before we prayed, I asked you to open to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. We'll take a look at it. It was uh, in episode 12 of the last Judean and Perean ministry, so much earlier in uh, our Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, remember, we have the Galilean ministry is the bulk of, of our Lord's ministry. And then after that, the last Judean and Priam ministry. And then finally now where we are in this uh, recent realm of studies in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. So in the last Judean and Priam ministry, episode number 12, we have a, an episode called Judgment Against Lawyers and Pharisees. So you might expect that we're going to have some similar uh, messages or some overlap in content as we deal with uh, the audience in Matthew 23, which are scribes and Pharisees. So um, similar context, similar application to be drawn. Uh, now when he had spoken, reading from Luke 11:37, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. So obviously it's an entirely different setting, it's a different venue, it's not the temple, it's not Jerusalem, it's not during the Passion Week. Um, and so we have no problem accepting this as a separate episode. And when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. Okay, now keep this in mind because we're going to have some very similar language coming up when he talks about the outside of the cup versus the inside of the cup. And you could have the cleanest outside of the cup in the world and, and who cares as far as what it is that you're, you're, you're pouring down your, your gullet. So uh, I don't know if I've ever used gullet in the Bible class before. So this, is, this is history in the making. Yeah. Moving on. Verse 40. You foolish ones. You foolish ones. And uh, keep that terminology in mind as well. A lot of name-calling going on between hypocrites and uh, foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean to you. And then we reach an application of woe in the same Greek vocabulary we're going to be studying today. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Remember when we dealt with this? It'd be like going into your kitchen and pulling all of the spices off your spice rack and making sure that you, you, know, you unscrewed the cap and you poured out and you measured very carefully and you're looking at this little thing of, of, of dill and you're, and you're trying to figure out how you can provide that 10% of that to the, to the temple because uh, this is how fastidious you are in your legal observance of, of tithing. 
and yet you disregard justice and the love of God, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. Here's more woe. For you love the chief seats and the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. That's almost identical language word for word to what we looked at last week in Matthew 23. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Don't even realize that, uh, that you're walking over dead men's bones. And uh, I enjoy this chapter. In fact, I wouldn't mind teaching this chapter all over again just because it's so much fun. Um, the Lord's hitting them hard. Okay? Now, does this mean he's carnal? Does this mean he's angry? Well, he might be angry, but he's not carnal. Okay? Does this mean that he's... Um, you know, I, I think we've, it doesn't mean he doesn't have love. Has he abandoned love? Even though he's tough, he's still loving, right? All right. And this is, a, I think we need to make more observations of this because we've got the world's definition of what tolerance is all about or what love is all about or how we should be accepting and how we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't call a spade a spade, you know. In fact, you can't even use that idiom anymore. They tell you that you're racist if you use phrases like that. But... You know, all this is is just the satanic uh, political correctness that is trying to enslave everybody. And you can't teach plainly. You can't speak the truth in love and just lay it out there for what it is. And um, if, you, if, if there's a satanic cult out there with false doctrine, why, uh, why do you sugarcoat that? You ought to just lay it out there. Well, we don't want to offend anybody. Okay. Well, was that Jesus' concern? Look at verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Okay? And so how does Jesus now just kind of back down like a softy and say, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. No, what does he do in verse 46? But he says, Well, woe to you lawyers as well. <laughs> Thanks for speaking up. You too. That's right. <laughs> woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Again, that's almost word for word with what we were looking at a week ago in Matthew 23. So, as we look at this, I hope we recognize that we're not looking for, um, we're not trying to find Bible verses to validate um, obnoxious behavior. We're not trying to find Bible verses to justify uh, deliberate um uh, deliberate, uh, you know, offense making. Okay, it's not the purpose to throw a stumbling block out there. It's not the purpose to offend people. We don't want to be offensive ourselves personally, but the Word of God is offensive. And what we have to be is we have to be blunt with the Word of God when He calls us to be blunt with the Word of God. And if they're offended, they're offended. But it's over the Word of God. It's not over us. And I hope we can recognize that. All right. Obviously, um, our Lord was in the habit of teaching messages over and over again in different venues, different contexts, different audiences. If, uh, once again, he finds himself surrounded by scribes and Pharisees, so why not break out the old scribe and Pharisee hypocrite message that he has probably memorized since he's given it so many times? And um, absolutely, use it again. Use it again. If it, if it works, use it again. You know, uh, the... Uh, you get material. Ralph always told me, he said, you know, tuck three or four sermons in the back of your Bible. That way, no matter where you are, if, if you're called upon to preach, you can just open up your Bible and slip out the notes you've had hidden there for 20 years and, and preach it. You know, you got the opportunity to do that. 
And uh, so what if your church has heard it before? Now you're in a new setting. They haven't heard it before, so use it there kind of a thing. In fact, even within the context of Matthew's gospel, you know, when you see uh, even within Matthew, uh, Matthew 23 is not the first time that Jesus was warning the Pharisees against the hypocrites. Matthew's gospel records multiple occasions in which Jesus warns his disciples against Pharisee hypocrisy. And uh, in Matthew 16, at least, he uh, is equating hypocrisy with leaven. And so he uses leaven as uh, the warning there in Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. We can take a look at that as well. Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. There's more in Luke, but just uh, without reading the whole chapter, let's go ahead and move on to Matthew 16 and verse 5. And this is kind of interesting because in chapter, in you know, just previously he had fed four thousand there in chapter fifteen, and earlier than that he'd fed five thousand, and uh, and now they're getting in a boat and uh, coming to the other side of the sea, but they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, "Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." And they began discussing this among themselves, saying, "He uh, he said that because we did not bring any bread." <laughs> All right. Oh, you men of little faith. You men of little faith. Now, we use that phrase a lot. Um, and I think we use it in context different than how it's used here. And that's actually a problem. It's not a matter of um, the fact that they're, they're, um, they're under satanic attack and if they had more faith, they would stand their ground better. Okay. No, what this is about is that, is that Jesus is trying to get across a spiritual principle, but they're earthly minded. And so the idea of little faith, uh, here at least, doesn't pertain to how well I can withstand uh, direct angelic conflict um, uh, considerations. The, the context here is about whether or not I'm going to be spiritually minded or earthly minded. That when he mentions leaven, the first thing I go to is, is earthly bread in my, in my belly. Okay, well, that's because I'm the littleness of my faith. I'm not thinking in spiritual realms first and physical realms second. Okay. And I try to, to tweak little things like that around here every once in a while. And I did so for about a month straight after the move. And people would be walking around looking at the structure, right? And they'd say, boy, this is a beautiful church. I'd say, yes, it is. And the building's very nice as well. And trying to jog some thinking into the recognition that the, the beautiful church, the church that I love, is the people that fellowship here under the authority of Jesus Christ and for the mutual edification of one another. And I would love the same people in a cardboard box as opposed to the, the structure that, that God's blessed us with. So, uh, you know, when, when you think leaven, are you thinking first in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm? When you're thinking, um, you know, what do you have in store for you today? Is it spiritual or is it earthly? And Jesus calls them here men of little faith. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you picked up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And uh, here the connection is made to their teaching in verse 12, when you connect it with Luke 12:1, you understand that the teaching is the hypocritical teaching, that he was warning them against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees.
Luke 12, 1, Jesus, uh, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All right. So we have all of these messages, and it's interesting when you're looking at Luke 11, you're looking at Luke 12, you're looking at Matthew 16, you're looking at Matthew 23, or you're looking at Mark, you're looking at all these parallel texts for repeated events in the life of Christ. And what's the common theme? You know, we got lawyers and Pharisees, we got scribes and Pharisees, we got Sadducees and Pharisees. What's the common thread through all of this? Pharisees, there you go, yeah. And uh, it seems to be that that Pharisaical attitude is what uh, carries across. And it doesn't matter what context you put them in uh, because the scribes or the lawyers or the Sadducees or whoever, when they're put into a side-by-side comparison with the Pharisees, uh, find themselves um, affected by that same attitudinal approach, that same legalism, that same hypocrisy, that same sense of, uh, of prestige. And how do I measure up to these guys? They were like the gold standard. How do I measure up to these guys? And completely missing the point that you want to flee from them. <laughs> Don't measure up to them. Flee from them, you see. And uh, in my mind, I, I wonder sometimes if, if the spirit of our age is not falling into the same trap of what we're talking about today. Because there's a movement among Protestant evangelical churches to return to liturgy, to return to a liturgical mode of, of worship like in the, the high church of Anglicanism or like Roman Catholicism or like to go back to um, the advent calendar and all the trappings of the of the uh, the vestments and the robes and the, the the drapes and the the you know it's amazing you get the matching communion tablecloth with the matching uh, you know oversized scarf on the priest robes and the the banners on the walls and the the bulletins you get when you're walking in and all of the 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 seat coverings and things it's stunning that uh, that evangelicals are trying to blend going back into that that kind of a mode and uh the sadness is i mean let's face it we don't compete with that <laughs> if you're gonna if you want to go liturgical just go roman catholic i mean they started it all go to the go to the pinnacle of it okay and it's like these guys why am i trying to match the pharisees they're the pinnacle of what it is that's tearing you down i don't know I'll probably continue to chew on that. I just think what we're seeing, though, is we're seeing the foreshadowing. Can I be honest? The fore- of course, I can be honest. The foreshadowing of what's going to happen after the rapture. When every regenerate believer is gone out of every church on the planet, and then there's nothing that's going to hold them back from once again resuming under, I still teach the harlot being of Roman 17 is Roman Catholicism. So um, in any event, we'll... Uh, We'll see how those things unfold uh, in some future studies. All right. Point five. Back to Matthew 23. Jesus delivers seven woes in a manner reminiscent of many Old Testament prophets. Jesus delivers seven woes in a manner reminiscent of many Old Testament prophets. And he got them here starting in Matthew 23:13, taking you all the way down to verse 33. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 33. It is, I believe, seven woes, uh, depending on your 
text criticism and how you handle verse 14. There could be an eighth woe in there. I believe it's pretty clear that verse 14 does not belong in the Gospel of Matthew, that it was an interpolation brought across from uh, Mark and Luke. It's much easier to understand its inclusion as an interpolation rather than its removal. There'd be no reason to remove it in, in the manuscript evidence. But that's all right. We're talking about woe. It's kind of fun. The Greek word sounds like woe. It's ouai. Ouai. One of those onomatopoetic words, which crack me up every time I have to use the expression. Onomatopoetic. Onomatopoetic means that it, it sounds like what it is. Okay? Even though the label for such a term is no such thing. Um, onomatopoetic. Ooh-I, ooh-I. You know, if someone comes in here shouting, ooh-I, ooh-I, you wouldn't have to know what language they're speaking. You would just, you're, you would know by the way it's sounding and by the, the, uh, the tone of their ooh-I that, uh, that they're not doing, they're not having a good day. Uh, ooh-I is number 3759 in the Strong's Concordance. It has 46 New Testament uses, seven of which are right here, uh, most of which are in the Gospels. Um, it does come from really two separate Hebrew interjections. In, in Hebrew, you have hoi and oi. Hoi and oi. And even today, you know, it, it's almost comical the way it shows up in movies and so forth. The oi vey and the, the Yiddish um, interjections that they, they try to throw in there based on what they think, uh, you know, what they think a, a Jewish person would say when confronted with something uh, bad, uh, but in Hebrew you have hoy, number nineteen forty-five has fifty-one uses, and the less common oy, starting with an aleph rather than a hey, and uh, oy is number one eighty-eight. It has twenty-five uses, and they seem to be rather synonymous, uh, inter- interchangeable. Um, really, maybe more of a spelling or pronunciation preference, even possibly even a dialectical difference. Um, when it comes right down to it. So, but between the 51 uses of hoy and the 25 uses of oi, uh, you got a fair number of passages there to skim through. And it won't take you long to realize that oi or hoy or uai is bad news. Okay? Uai uh, never appears in a happy message. <laughs> okay? It is never, I mean, it, it'll work together for good, but it is not good when you hear uai. Okay, and uh, so what I've given you here a sampling. That's a pretty comprehensive sampling. Uh, in Numbers 21:19 and 24:23, in 1 Samuel 4 verses 7 and 8, Proverbs 23:29, and then uh, some Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, some good prophets. Uh, this is this is really I think an indicator of, of the Lord fully. Uh, this is like the height of his prophetic ministry is right here. You know, two more days he's done as a prophet. He's going to start serving as a priest. Uh, but up till now, he's functioning as an Old Testament prophet, as a prophet of Israel. So in Isaiah, you've got chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, chapter 6 and verse 5, chapter 24 and verse 16. In Jeremiah 4, you've got verse 13 and 31. whole string of these in Jeremiah. 6, 4, 10, 19. 13:27, 15:10, 45:3 and 48:46. 
I like to read through this for the sake of anybody that's listening on MP3 and can't look at the slide to, to copy them down. Uh, still dealing with the weeping prophet Jeremiah in his book Lamentations 5.16. A couple of chapters in Ezekiel 16.23. We were there just uh, Sunday actually on an unrelated study. Ezekiel 16.23. Ezekiel 24 verses 6 and 9. And then finally Hosea 7.13 and 9.12. 7.13 and 9.12. And I don't want to I mean, we could spend a lot of time in these verses. Let's see. Numbers 21. Let's, let's go ahead and look at a few of them anyway. Numbers 21, 19. You get the flavor of it. And uh, I think once you get the sense of this, we just need a better appreciation for what Old Testament prophets were all about and uh, the, the conflict that they were about because they had to deliver the messages that no one else wanted to hear, <laughs> right? They had to stand up to kings. You know, who's going to tell the king that he's out of line? You know, none of his princes are, none of his soldiers are. Uh, the people that work for him, work for him. Okay? But um, prophets had greater fear of the Lord than fear of the king. And they, like Nathan, would stand up and rebuke David for his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, and all the rest. All right, Numbers 21, 19. The... Um, How about that? Right off the bat, we have... Is it 29? All right, thank you. Right off the bat. Another advantage to doing every single one of these is we can find the typos. Thank you, Bob. This is verse 29. So you'll notice this is in the midst of a uh, context that goes back to verse 27. It's not a happy message. Uh, therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab, you are ruined, O people of Hamash. So again, is this a happy message? No, you will never find Oi or Hoi or Uai. You will never find these with good news. It's always, um, and it's almost, I won't say never, but I want to say never. It's almost never used. Let me double check this. When you get to the point of oi, you're already past the last chance. Okay? You're already, it's not like Jonah and Nineveh. It's not, it's not like a do this or else kind of a thing. The oi comes when you're already at the or else stage. Okay? The or else is now happening. Uh, the oi is declaring to you that, Judgment is here. And so we see that there. Woe to Moab, you are ruined, O people of Hamash. That's their false god. He has given his sons as fugitives, his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. So there you have it. A few chapters later in chapter 24. It's rendered alas. Alas. That's kind of lame. I like woe. To me, alas, is just kind of, I don't know, Shakespearean. Let's, let's deal with woe. That's more Hebrew Old Testament. So he uh, took up his discourse and said, woe, alas, who can live except God has ordained it? You know, I'm, I'm only alive because of God's grace. I'm in such woe and distress that I should be dead now. 
But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall afflict Asher, and will afflict Eber. So they will also come to destruction. And uh, Balaam's done there with his oracle. All right. So it's not just uh, Hebrew prophets doing this. Here's a Gentile prophet, Balaam, using uh, using hoy or oi type language. First Samuel four verses seven and eight. First Samuel four verses seven and eight. I think another benefit to uh, reviewing these is that it reminds us, again contrary to our culture, that being a faithful messenger from the Lord is not always fun and games. And it's not always happiness. And it's not always, um, you know, the feel-good type messages. Sometimes it's the hard-hitting, chew-you-out kind of messages, which, you know, don't feel good at the time, but they do later after you learn from the, from the rebuke. And so uh, the Philistines uh, take the ark here. And um, you got Eli here and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. And uh, verse 5, we read, The ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp. All Israel shouted with a great shout, so the earth resounded. And uh, see, it's kind of interesting. They're, they're terrified that the Philistines are going to defeat them. And so they think, here's what we can do. Let's bring the ark out. If the ark is in our camp, we can't lose. You know, it's like a, a magic spell. It's like a token. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the power of God. Never mind, of course, that we're in complete carnality. Uh, we can just carry this box around and God will be happy with us. And, uh, and our enemies are going to die. <laughs> and so Eli and um, the sons here, they bring them out, bring out the ark. And, and, all, and uh, there's a great shout. And the earth resounded. And so when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of the great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. And they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Now, even though they themselves are under this woe, self-defeat attitude, um, they basically say, well, we've got nothing to lose. All we, all we can do is die, right? So let's go die. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated because guess what? <laughs> they weren't pleasing to the Lord and, and having some gimmick of carrying the ark before you wasn't going to change the reality of, of their rebellion, of their reversionism. You know, like people that decide, well, let's make a good show about coming to church on a Sunday while they're just living like pagans Monday through Saturday. Is the, is the, the, the fake show, is that fooling God any? Yeah, Philistines can still kill you. And uh, <laughs> not on a Sunday morning here, of course. Philistines are long gone. Anyway, there's the point. Uh, so it's not always God pronouncing the woe. It's not always his prophets pronouncing the woe. Sometimes it's even, like here, unbelievers pronouncing woe on themselves. See, because they come to feel like somehow God's out to get them. So, you know, that's an interesting use on that. Not a happy condition. Proverbs twenty three twenty nine. We're only up to Proverbs 12 in our teen class. So it'll be a while. 11 more teen classes before we get to Proverbs 23. 
And um, who is it that has woe? Who is it that has sorrow? Who is it that has contention? Who is it that has complaining? Who is it that has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? This is a pretty pathetic person in verse 29, wouldn't you say? <laughs> All right. Well, it describes in verse 30, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. And, uh, you know, you got woe in your life. What's the answer? Just get drunk and forget about it? Well, trust me, that's not a small crowd that has chosen and that's the way they want to go. <laughs> that's how they can deal with, uh, with the woe in their life. Just drink till you can't remember it anymore. That, that solves everything, doesn't it? Okay, now, see, the problem with only picking a few of these, I think some of them are just outstanding, and I would hate to miss a couple. Isaiah 3. I mean, Isaiah is just so majestic, and Jeremiah isn't called the weeping prophet for nothing. And, uh, yeah, Isaiah 3, verses 9 and 11. You'll notice um, Isaiah 3.8, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. You know, the, Yahweh's woe messages aren't always against the Philistines. They're not always against the enemies like Moab and so forth. More often than not, they're actually against His own people who should know better. The expression uh, on their faces bears witness against them. <laughs> and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. You know, at least concealing it shows some modicum of, of remaining conscience that at least has the human decency to maybe try to, try to be low-key about what you're doing. But just blatantly throwing it all out there in the open, you know, before God and man and angels alike saying, here's what I'm doing and I'm proud of it. That uh, that puts you into a woe mode right there. You see in verse 9, down to verse 11, or say to the righteous in verse 10 that it will go well with them for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him. And if you think about it, that's... Uh, that right there means that uh, you're no longer under uh, a grace mode where God doesn't deal with us based on what we've earned or deserved. He says, all right, you're going to get what you deserve. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully in that discipline, he'll at least have some mercy to cut it short so I don't get the fullness of what I deserve. But he's going to start dealing with me according to what I deserve. Wow. That's a scary thought right there. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. You look at the juvenile leadership that you have and you look at the, um, the immaturity and you look at the, the, the vindictiveness and the spitefulness and it's just childish. And women, feminized rule and government over you. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. I don't know if you saw it or not. Did you watch the, the video of... Prime Minister Netanyahu in his various speeches, his speech to Congress, his speech to our president, his speech to uh, the uh, AIPAC group. Did you see any of those last week? 
what, what really hit me, I mean, I didn't gain any pleasure over the fact that my president was made to look like a child. That it was, that was sad, actually. That shouldn't happen. But what was refreshing, like I, I, I'll, I'll confess this freely, what was absolutely refreshing was that in these speeches, what was plain, what was obvious, what was undeniable, what was wonderful to behold was leadership, was a real leadership. I thought, man, that's, a, that's something to be respected at least. wish it was my leadership <laughs> when it comes right down to it. Somebody, I think it was Rush Limbaugh, one of the radio guys, made the joke. He said, can we, can we forge up a Hawaii birth certificate for BB Netanyahu and <laughs> let, him, uh, let him run for president next year? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right, enough on that. Um, but we see it here in this woe message when God delivers a people over who should know better, his people, um, where their speech and actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. And uh, when a people that should be in obedience are actually in rebellion, then uh, woe is not far behind. Chapter 6 and verse 5. This is when Isaiah sees the glory of uh, the seraphim and the throne and the song of holy, holy, holy. And he says to himself, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. And he knows he's absolutely unworthy to be witnessing the majesty of the heavenly throne. Here's these seraphim covering their faces and uh, singing the holy, 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 not even wanting to look upon the, the holy glory there. And Isaiah sees it all. And he thinks he's doomed. Fortunately, he's not. God will touch his lips there and iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. When God says you're righteous, you're righteous. And you're entitled to stand where He puts you. And that's uh, almost boggling to the mind, isn't it? Isaiah 24:16. This is in a stretch here in Isaiah. sometimes called Isaiah's Apocalypse. The little apocalypse of Isaiah kind of thing. And language is very similar to Revelation and, and uh, so forth. Um, well, too much there to try to take the whole thing in its context, but it's verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. For the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. And so here we got, it almost seems like, doesn't it seem contradictory? How can you have celebration and glory on the one hand and woe and destruction on the other hand? Well, you do. When, and we're going to have it again on the tribulation on a global scale. When those that are uh, uh, the heaven dwellers are rejoicing before the Father's throne of grace and the earth dwellers are uh, receiving the, uh, the wrath poured out. Anyway, have some fun with that. All right. Let's uh, let you take the rest of those then on a homework basis. Jeremiah 4. Remember, that's the chapter that has some of the Tohu Wabohu language, the angelic fall before the destruction of the original earth. Um, Lamentations, Ezekiel, 
We were in Ezekiel 16 on Sunday. I don't remember why now, but we were in Ezekiel 16 on Sunday that deals with the um, the words to uh, Judah uh, for playing the harlot there. Ezekiel 24, Hosea 7, Hosea 9. All right, you have those. We can look at those. Let's start dealing with the woes. Subpoint A is woe number one. Woe number one. Scribes and Pharisees, also known as hypocrites, a.k.a. hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites. They are unsaved and actively hinder the salvation of others. Unsaved and actively hinder the salvation of others. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Matthew 23, 13. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites. Also known as hypocrites. Part of my law enforcement background, trying to track everybody's aliases, <laughs> all of their AKAs. And some of these guys would have 10, 15, 20 different AKAs based upon all kinds of stuff. We already read Luke 11:52. We saw the, we actually, we probably didn't get all the way down to verse 52, but we did, we did read the context of uh, Luke 11, and we saw that that was the parallel text in an earlier phase of Jesus' ministry where he was giving a very similar message. And so it's a parallel text to what we're taking a look at here. All right, you do not enter in yourselves. You do not enter in yourselves. Now, we've had teachings in the past about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. We understand what it was that they were looking forward to, what it was was their blessed hope, what they were anticipating, the coming of their king, and with the king comes their kingdom, and with their kingdom comes blessings and and, uh, all the, the goodness of what they were hoping for. And the idea of entering into the kingdom we can use loosely now, we can use as an expression, you know, equivalent to being saved. Okay? Now, there's a whole lot more that goes into it, and it's not actually factually true in some cases, but for today's purposes, we're fine with that. We're fine with saying, okay, in this, in this realm, uh, not entering into the kingdom or keeping others from entering into the kingdom equals not letting them come to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Okay? which we can rephrase as saying getting saved, receiving eternal life. Okay? Now, are there exceptions? Of course. There are believing Pharisees. There's Nicodemus, we know, who came to him by night. Uh, we're going to find out that there's another one named, named Joseph of Arimathea. We don't even learn about him until after Jesus is dead. Uh, but there are, there are probably you know, a handful of others that have kept it very secret. But as a rule, just speaking in general terms, overall, the Pharisees have rejected Jesus Christ. There's no question on that. They've rejected him going all the way back to Matthew 16. And as a class, as a group, as a party, and the, uh, the leading role that they have in the Sanhedrin, they stand in opposition to faith in Christ. And so, uh, but they're not content with merely being opposed to Christ. They want to hinder others. Okay. And this is the kind of thing that we will encounter. I encounter it all the time. I'm sure you encounter it all the time, right? Uh, I encounter it with militant atheists who are, you know, not content to simply be 
God deniers. They want to try to convert everybody else into being atheists. They think that because they deny existence of God, that, uh, that you should deny existence of God. And they will work hard to convince you, which I find, I think it's a testimony to their soul, which, which testifies to the existence of God. Okay? And, and I can't find a human explanation why folks would be so militant about other people not believing in what they don't believe in. Okay? Because that never carries across into other subjects. I don't believe in the tooth fairy. But I don't write books about it, and I don't talk to people about it, and I don't, I don't crusade to try to uh, convince other people to not believe in the tooth fairy. Yeah. Why so hostile? Why am I so uncomfortable over even the, the subject? Why am I offended if there's a if there's a, 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 a an Easter bunny? I don't believe in the Easter bunny. I think that the bunny thing is stupid. But you know, <laughs> when it comes right down to the fertility deals of the Middle Ages, but um, I don't get all worked up about it. I don't I don't storm out of a HEB because there's a, a bunny thing display thing up there. You know, what is it? And I don't know what it is. It's the, it's the demonic impulses. It's the satanic opposition. It's the hatred for Jesus Christ that forces them to, to crusade against against him because uh, it's not a, it's not an issue of their uh, that. Well, they don't have enough evidence or blah, blah, blah. They've actively disbelieved in an active voice of opus duo. So here they are. Uh, they shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. They've actually put obstacles in the way. They've actually crafted their religious structure in such a way that all the focus is put on non-issues, like observing the law and, and memorizing Pharisaical teachings. Uh, so much so to the point that there's no energy left, there's no time left, there's no opportunity left, there's no way to clearly see the person of Jesus Christ. Shutting off the kingdom. They've, they've um, created uh, flawed hermeneutics to deny Isaiah 53, for example, as being messianic. You know, it's remarkable the Roman church did the same thing in the first few centuries after Christ. By 590 AD, by the time you get to Gregory the first, uh, the what we identify with today as Catholicism is in its... Uh, you know, in its infant form and, and up and running with a lot of their um, a lot of their blocks in place to keep the kingdom of heaven shut off. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're saved by grace. But what do they mean by that? What they mean by that is that the favor is Mary's and that you have to show devotion to Mary and then then you can deserve for Mary to give her grace to you. And grace is no longer grace at that point. They still use the word. But it's Hail Mary full of grace. And she's the one. If, we, if, we, if we're going to be saved by grace, where are we going to get it? Because Mary's got it all. <laughs> oh, that's something else. Now, are there people saved in those churches? Well, I've I got to tell you, it's not because of those churches. It's despite those churches. It's despite, I think Dave Hunt put it best, or maybe it was, um, 
I forget who said it now. They get saved because they're blessed enough, fortunate enough, or God graces them out enough uh, that they misunderstand what it is that their priest was telling them. <laughs> and if they, can, if they successfully misunderstand what they're being told by their theology and they start looking at their Bible, they can get saved the same way Martin Luther got saved. Understanding, wow, we're justified by faith alone. And, um, well, it is what it is. I'm not here to bash Catholics. I'm just trying to illustrate what we're dealing with here in terms of a religious structure that's shutting off the kingdom of heaven. And it could be baptistic religious structure. It could be any mode of, of uh, religious um, legalism. So you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering. They actually have another target in mind, and we're going to get down to this when we get to, well, it's our next woe. Let's look at it. Woe number two. Huh. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites, expend maximum satanic effort for minimum earthly results with doubled hellish consequences. With doubled hellish consequences. That's verse 15. They're not actually bringing people into the kingdom of heaven. So what are they bringing people into? What are they bringing people into? When the Jesuits go forth, what are they bringing people into? When the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses go forth, what are they bringing people into? When the Mormons go forth, what are they bringing people into? And why does it seem like that these groups seem to have an energy Driving them. Because they've got, uh, they've, they've, uh, they've certainly knocked on no small number of doors. They put a lot of miles on those bicycles. All right. What is driving them? They're going to the farthest ends of the earth. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because... You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. Just read 1 Corinthians 11 and see how dangerous sea and land travel is. Read about Paul's itinerary there and the dangers on the land, the dangers at sea. Travel uh, even with the Roman roads. Travel in the ancient world was uh, not exactly an easy endeavor. The, the bulk of humanity never traveled farther than uh, 30 miles from their birthplace, something, a pretty small number. Then everyone tended to stay local, tended to stay within, you know, a, a two or three days journey. The idea of going weeks at a time, who can afford to be gone from the farm weeks at a time? Who's going to work the farm while you're gone all that long? And how are you going to eat while you're gone that long? And, and journeys of great distances took great wealth, were undertaken by very few. So what are you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte? Just one. So look at the, it's out of proportion. You see this? This maximum effort, these links with the minimal earthly results. One proselyte. Now, are they trying to make citizens of the kingdom of heaven? 
Are they trying to convert children of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Or are they converting proselytes? Is this an effort to... Um, and and uh, you've got to wonder in the context of this, particularly when you go back to the introduction of verses 1 through 12, are they going to Gentiles? I don't think so. A Pharisee wouldn't talk to a Gentile. But they will try to convert someone to their Phariseeism. They will try to convert someone from the school of Shammai to the school of Hillel. They will, because uh, they, they, won't, they won't actually defile themselves with another Pharisee. The other Pharisees are okay. But you start talking to Sadducees and you're starting to approach the uncleanness. Or you start talking, if you, if you go to a non-observant Jew, well, that's a sinner. They won't even talk to sinners. And so who are they going to in this, to, to gain this proselyte? It's not to the lost and dying world. It's, uh, it's trying to, um, it's, it's uh, what we would call today, uh, you know, sheep stealing kind of a thing. That, that our goal, instead of, instead of uh, evangelizing unbelievers, our target is to uh, try to, you know, send agents into other churches and, and bring them over here. Okay. Mm. And uh, when you are successful, when your maximum satanic effort actually bears satanic fruit, what are you left with? When he becomes one, the end result being you make him or you cause him to be twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This, uh, this is uh, really an interesting commentary here. I think if you combine both 13 and 15 together, you've got a, you know, the first two of these seven are, are a pretty strong tandem as it relates to this brood of vipers and what it is they are actively doing in their anti-evangelism. Okay? What is it that they are actively doing as the agents of the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving? that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And to end up twice as much a son of Gehenna. A son of Gehenna, which is, uh, in my thinking, even more powerful than Hades. You know, if you ever do any hell studies on Gehenna and Hades and Tartarus and Torments and some of these places, uh, different compartments of Sheol and so forth. But um, Gehenna is, uh, and, and it's consistent from Matthew. Matthew's largely uh, writing to a Jewish audience and in, in using Hebrew and Aramaic terminology more than the other records. I'd, I'd be shocked if it was Hades here instead of Gehenna. But the idea of the burning judgment and wrath, of the place of burning where um, uh, just the, the total disgust on God's part in, in watching the wickedness of Judah and their child sacrifice and the, the way that they went after uh, Molech in the uh, in the things there but to be a son of hell i think this combines not only the satanic damage that's done um isn't it isn't it the case where um think about the generations in walking in the light think about the generations because god only puts up with four uh, the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him 
uh, when, when discipline hits and, and puts those things to an end. But think about the positive generations. I think about my dad. I think about uh, his dad was an unbeliever, but my dad gets saved. And so he's kind of in, in the, the generation one, as it were, of being saved and walking in the light. That's a tough road. That's not always easy for that first generation that didn't have Christian parents to ground them, didn't have the examples to learn from. But then I get to be born and I, get, I think of myself as generation number two. And there's a blessing. But then my son is born and now there's generation number three. And he has an example of believing parents and believing grandparents and, and, uh, and things there. And, and I think there's, there's blessings that, that accrue and, and multiply. And it's almost like... Um, um, maybe I'm not explaining this very well today, but we have this. And I think we can relate to this. I think I can demonstrate this biblically and, and through experience we see it played out. What about the other way? What about false religions? What about generation after generation after generation of Islam, for example? Or generation after generation after generation of Roman Catholicism is, is powerful. I've known people that have looked me in the eye and said, I know this doctrine is unbiblical. I know this doctrine is false. But, okay, this is my family we're talking about. My mother, my grandmother, my family. If, if I was to leave, uh, I can't. Oh, it, it, would, it would destroy them. They would be heartbroken. It would be, it'd be treason. I can't, you know... I'm sure there's good Bible teaching there at Austin Bible Church, but I, I could never attend there. Well, you never know. That's right. But I think these influences are powerful. And this scripture text is describing the proselytes and becoming twice as much a son of Gehenna. You wonder, what is their zeal going to be like? What is their zeal going to be like? Why was Paul's uh, zeal to persecute the church so much greater than, well, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel? And Gamaliel sat at the feet of Hillel. And why is it now that these proselytes get to become more and more dead? Because here's the, here's the bad secret about it. When you're under a legalistic religion, you've got to outdo the ones that came before. You can't just rise to that level. What is that? Okay. The more people that rise to that level just simply shows that, well, that level is nothing really special. Anybody can do it. What can we do more? What can we do greater? What can we do above and beyond? Twice as much a son of Gehenna. And I, I don't know. There, I think there's other. I'm out of time. There's other realms too. I think in humanity is vulnerable to this. Okay. Who are the most ferocious anti-smoking critics in our culture today? Ex-smokers. I'm not the only one that thinks so, huh? Okay. Think about other realms of experience. Um, and and it, it's, it's interesting. And people that have been through something, and they end up just completely embracing a cause and championing something. All right? I think there's an aspect of fallen humanity that's weak in that regard, that's, that has a tendency to adopt something and just run with it in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, almost an addiction kind of a way. Maybe that's uh, part of the curse and the, the nature of Adam's fall and that we... Or be, be, become vulnerable to uh, to these sort of things. All right. Well, we, I am past the hour, and uh, actually, I need to I need to scoot. I got a I got a hot lunch date today. So let me uh, let me close in prayer. Today's the day. Today. Today. Yeah. Seven thousand three hundred and five days ago today. That's right. <laughs> Father, thank you for today, for your truth, for your faithfulness. 
Thank you for my wife. Thank you for all of your abundant blessings. Father, you are faithful, and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.